The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone and happy Mother's Day to all the mothers here. We, my wife and I, Wynn and I, were at the Dalai Lama this afternoon. Anybody else there for the afternoon talk? Oh, a couple people. And he talked about how he was a bit of a tyrant with his mother sitting on her shoulders, grabbing her ears. When he wanted to go this way, he'd jerk this ear. And, this, and then if she didn't do what he wanted, he tantrum. That's what he said. He's talking about how much he appreciated his mother's kindness and patience with him. So we've been talking the last several weeks about the body. Uh, we're going to go on to chapter 9 in Jack Kornfield's book, The Wise Heart, which is about feeling. But I thought we'd take some time to check in about the body. We haven't had a lot of time for discussion and see if there are any questions about that or just generally about the meditation experience or questions about Buddhism more generally. Uh, before we go on to chapter 9. So just as a reminder, uh, the last week we did the uh, meditation on the 52 body parts and the um, corpse meditation, two traditional practices in Buddhism, which we don't do too much here. But it's really nice to understand because it changes our ideas about the body. And the practice we did tonight isn't so much about having a different view of the body, like instead of thinking of the body as one whole thing, we see it as a bunch of parts. It's really changing our direct experience of the body. Because when, you know, when we're being uh, aware of the breath or we're being aware of the body sitting, generally the concept or the image comes into the mind and what we're actually being mindful of is our image of the body or our idea of the body. So by training, like in the way we did tonight with what's called the four elements, we're learning not to be confused by our ideas and images of the body and be able to actually know the direct physicality. So the way we broke it down is just a traditional way of categorizing actual sensations as they're being known. So any questions about body meditation? generally about the practice that come to mind? Experiences you want to share with the group? Yeah. And say your name, please. Uh, my name is James, and um, I was curious what the meditation is. It's essential that you have your eyes closed. Um, I know I've done a lot of yoga and so forth, and sometimes there's more of an active state of meditation. Yeah. Well, it really depends... Uh, on a, a couple things like one it depends in part on the kind of meditation you're doing or the intention in the meditation and the other thing it, it can depend on is the uh, quality of energy in the mind and so generally on that level if we're lacking energy it's, it can be quite nice to have the eyes open because it will bring in the light itself and just the activity of seeing the visual field being more active uh, energizes the mind to some degree. But if you're restless or your intention is to calm the mind, then it can be often helpful to have the eyes closed. So it's, in general, in the way we teach here at Common Ground and, uh, you know, the way the Buddha taught uh, was to, uh, as much as, you know, one can convey, like a whole range of skillful means with training and working and understanding the mind. And the idea would be like, we'd have a whole number of ways of working and training the mind in order to better understand the mind, not just one way. And so then, you know, we may take up a particular training for a while, or we may sort of do a few things on a regular basis and then shift after a couple months. And so it's really nice to get a, it's more confusing this way. You know, it would be easier to say we do one thing at Common Ground and one thing only, and this is how you do it. And then it, then it doesn't, we don't get so restless. Like, 
you know, we're sitting practicing with our eyes open and we're really restless. So we think, okay, I'll close my eyes, you know. And then we're really dull, start to sleep, and they say, oh, I should open my eyes. And we go back and forth. Well, that, that's not helpful. You know, so it's, it's, it's good to know to some degree about the different options, but then to have a clear sense of what you're doing in this particular set or what you're doing for this particular period of time. Okay, for two months, I'm going to really dig in with this kind of investigation or this kind of mental training and just see what I can learn. And it's also good to have a, you know, a teacher or even a couple teachers that you're working with to, to get a, some advice about what particular trainings you might do or what, what ways of working with the mind might balance what is out of balance in the mind. So I think of you. But it's, it's definitely okay to sit with your eyes open. Yeah, what's your name? My name is Owen. Owen. And uh, I had a particularly intense experience of the, um, the body yesterday. I gave a presentation, and I was one several people in a row, and I was the last one. And I, I had like this, I was well prepared, but I, I, I had like this intense anxiety. And I was really aware of other people's anxiety and nervousness too before me and just in the room it felt so much like that extreme tightness and really almost pain physically painful anxiety and on the one hand i was really like fearful of this i, I guess fear was part of it and i was also just like deeply trying to be mindful of the experience and of the just experiencing the anxiety. So I was breathing and I was just feeling the way it like really felt. And it was like, I, I just could feel like my heart, that was it. all I could, for a minute, it was just like bumping, you know, mm -hmm. and my heart like really intense. And, um, like coursing, and uh, and I didn't really have. I mean, I wouldn't categorize the experience as either positive or negative, but it was definitely like very. I mean, I was with that experience, and then it sort of subsided and was not that, but it was still there, and then it sort of returned and like copied once again, almost like out of breath, like jumping in the pool of water or something. So, I yeah. Thought I share yeah, yeah, thanks so much. I mean, experiences like this tell us a lot of things, teach us a lot of things. For example, how the body and mind mirror each other. And also, it's not only that, but we're also mirroring back what's going on around us. You know, like, uh, if we're around people who are really relaxed, we tend to relax. And when we're around a lot of anxiety or fear, we tend to recognize it. And if when recognizing other people's anxiety and fear, we're already in a defensive stance with our own anxiety, then that just amplifies it. You know, it's like we're seeing it. And then, of course, the more we can the more we're sort of picking out the anxiety, the more we'll see it. And the more we see it, the more we pick it out. You know, it's like we have a heightened sensitivity. So there is a, in general in life, there is this exponential function that tends to happen. What the mind gets in the habit of seeing, it sees. The more it sees it, the more it gets in the habit of seeing it. So we don't always have to fall into this pattern in a negative sense where we're getting into these like, panic attacks or these anxiety, uh, extreme anxiety experiences. We can also do it in terms of seeing kindness or seeing release or seeing people with spacious, seeing our own aspects of the mind that are spacious, seeing other people's spaciousness. And it can also have that exponential feedback, like things can really open up quickly. 
like if we just started to tune in, you know, to whatever quality of friendliness that is alive now in the mind, in the heart, you know, just to notice that we feel safe, we feel friendly, and, you know, as we're gazing around the room, to just get the sense it's a pretty friendly crowd, people seem really nice. You know, it can, it can become quite expansive and beautiful very quickly. And then if we, you know, we farted and, and got <laughs> nervous and then started to, we could very, we could get into very tight space very quickly too. And it's just to see how that uh, body and mind play together, you know, kind of co-creating our reality. Another interesting thing from what Owen was saying about the buildup of anxiety is, um, you know, the, the thing about, sounds like you're going to do some public speaking. If you didn't hear him in the back, had to make a, he said he had to make a presentation. And so, um, so there's fear, and then the body reflects that fear by getting tight in some way. You know, we, each of us, we hold our bodies in different ways when we have fear. But generally, you may be noticed when we are paying attention to the body in a more direct way, the body wants to move. Sensation, its very nature, is to move. And then when we're afraid, like something's going to happen, in a primitive way, we think if I get tight, I'll somehow be able to control the, you know, anxiety is basically the sense, the perception that things are spinning out of control. Like this is going to happen and I don't know what's, I'm not in control. I don't know what I'm going to say. I, I don't know if what I'm going to say is right or whatever, you know. And so we have this sort of primitive, superficial response generally to get, to get tight. But energy wants to move. So, you know, the tightness doesn't actually add any control. And on some level, mostly unconscious, we know that. So what do we do? We get tighter. You know, and, and the more we get tight and then recognize on some level that it's not helping, we only have one response, which is get tighter and tighter. And this is like that mechanism of a panic attack. And this happens to you know, people in different ways. And it sounds like in your example, Owen, that for whatever reason you had the wherewithal, the wisdom, to maintain a thread of mindfulness. Like that somehow it was relevant to keep paying attention. Because to run from that buildup of tension, that buildup of anxiety, is itself anxiety producing. You know, it's more of the buildup. So the fact that it's like a sort circuit, circuitine uh, sort. <laughs> that word that I can't say. You know, and it diffuses the pressure. That mindfulness diffuses it. Because it's, it's sort of breaking the feedback. Like the energy now gets poured into seeing, into knowing. The pressure's like this. The anxiety's like this. And it, and there's, it allows for moving. Because awareness, mindfulness, is the opposite of fixing. Mindfulness is seeing things as they are. So it allows things to move. It's not projecting it has to be this way. So it's really healing for this, if we have the wherewithal to do it, to sit with it. Not to be mindful in order to make it go away, because that doesn't work, but to be mindful because, like in Owen's case, the way he described it, it sounds like uh, it, it's like he had some deep spiritual instinct, wisdom instinct, that this is the only thing that was left. You know, it was the big thing in the room, and it, it sort of, like, it was the only skillful thing to do, which is to open to it. And it was interesting, you said then that it dissipated, and then it came back. Because what happens when it dissipates? We feel, erroneously, we're off the hook, you know, and we stop practicing, you know? And then it can bit, build right back up in the next moment. So this is the thing, generally, it's like we learn very powerful lessons in these, you know, in the long run, it will be a relatively small incident in your life. But, you know, it was pretty intense. We, these are important insights to distill. Because one of the things that will teach you is the importance of continuity, that, 
not to let go of the practice when life gets back to normal. Because what was really useful when it was intense is just as useful when it's not intense. It's just the feedback mechanism isn't as obvious as where it, when it's intense. When it's intense, it really helps. And it's obvious that it really helps. When life isn't so intense, it's not so obvious how useful it is. But what we'd like is to have enough faith to maintain that clear presence with how it is you know, throughout the day. Thanks for sharing that, Owen. Other thoughts people have? Experiences with the body or other questions? Um, Christina, I find that I've had a panic attacks over the years, and I find that the hardest part is the part leading up to it, and I almost can't wait to get to the part where you hyperventilate. <laughs> <laughs> Letting out energy and yeah. storing the energy, because you get tight, 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 and then all of a sudden when the, when the um, breathing explosion starts to happen, that almost feels better because it's almost more open. Yeah. Even though it's like there's a level of embarrassment because everyone can see. Yeah, yeah, that we're losing it. Yeah, but it, yeah. it's almost refreshing to actually let out and, and relax and open up again. Right. I don't know if that's like... Yeah, and you know, in a in a way, like it's always nice to have these similes for freedom as we uh, experience developing the practice of mindfulness. And one simile for, free, uh, for freedom is that the way the mind is relating to the body, that it's always unwinding. So no matter what sort of intensity might be flowing through in life, you know, as experiences arise for us, some of those experiences, a lot of them are intense. And so there's an intense movement of emotional, physical, and mental energy because of the different experiences that arise for us, right? And then enlightenment, freedom, can be the sense of the mind meeting experience in a way that's in no way constricting the movement of physical, emotional, and mental energy. So physical sensations are allowed to move, emotional experiences allowed to move, mental experiences allowed to move. There's no friction in the system. Now with a panic attack, you know, at some point, there's going to be a release, you know, in one way or another. And it's just a matter of how tight it has to get before the energy finds a way to move. And it can get really messy. Like, some people have pretty tight defense systems. So it can be years, you know, years of pressure building up, like, you know, the earthquake that struck Japan. You know, what's going on in the earth is not that different than what goes on in a human being. We're just sort of metaphors for each other. And so sometimes when the earth releases pressure, it's pretty destructive. And sometimes it's not. You know, it's more gradual. So wouldn't it be nice to find a way of living where the pressure that's building naturally in life is also naturally being released just as quickly as it's building up? Think about that in terms of our intimate relationships, you know, our friends, good friends and partners, you know, where pressure can build up. And if somehow we had a way of releasing the pressure, the inevitable pressure that was building with our parents, with our loved ones, with our partners, with ourselves, with our jobs, with our relationship to the world at large. Yeah. Christina? Yeah, thanks, Christina. Other thoughts? Yeah. Um, this is interesting to me to talk about the energy release because I've been doing acupuncture on a weekly basis and I've been finding that it's like, for me, like meditation for dummies, it's like immediately I'm, you know, bright mind, I'm completely um, in a meditative state without much effort at all. However, my sitting is very challenging for me every day. And um, and I've been like, well, what's the secret sauce of the, mm-hmm. you know, of the acupuncture? It so, has made it so easy for me. And I feel like from what you were discussing right here, it feels like perhaps there's like a physical, like a physical energy, you know, like I, I'm not sure what's happening, but I, I believe it to be physical because I believe I'm in pain when I'm sitting. And, mm-hmm. um, I don't know how to work through that in meditation, or is that something that 
Good question. It's Molly, you said? Molly, yeah. yeah. So you're saying that during the acupuncture treatment, yeah, it's really it. easy to be bright and clear and mindful. It's like I can't be anything else. It's, yeah. it's like really intense. So probably, and then given what you said second, you know, that uh, um, the discomfort in meditation. Now, we, the mind is conditioned to relate to discomfort in a particular way which is it's a problem. And generally when there's a problem, somehow, I don't know why, but somehow we've learned that getting tight in the mind and in the body is the first and foremost thing we do with problems. Like, you know, we got that look in the face, that intent, sort of, okay, there's a problem in life. And it's as if somehow we can't be serious, we can't be clear unless we're tight. And so there we are, we're going to sit. And as we already, just the fact that we're going to do a meditation can make us tight. You know, This is serious. It's spiritual business. And so we get tight <laughs> because we're going to address you know, the existential issues of my life, birth and death, suffering, freedom. And so even that alone, even if we didn't have physical discomfort, that's enough to make us tight. And so we have to tease out all of the causes of tightness in our meditation practice because um, it doesn't it's it's in the way of the practice developing so even if we really get good at it like we're not adding any tightness and then we sit down and we're not adding any tightness but the body is tight just from you know the cumulative stress we've been experiencing over the years so there we are opening to the body in a relaxed way and noticing how tight it is, noticing how uncomfortable it is. Then as we're knowing those sensations that are unpleasant, we have to be careful about those sensations, those unpleasant sensations triggering that tight response. We have to resolve like tightness is not the way. And one of the ways we resolve that is we hear it, hopefully you're hearing it over and over again, that the two main qualities in mindfulness meditation, relaxation and alertness. We have to remember that. Like we have to be able to recall that person. What am I doing? Oh yeah, I'm learning to relax and I'm learning to be clear with things as they are. We should be able to recall that at any time in our life, in our sit and in our daily life. What's the basic teaching? Oh yeah, relax and be interested relax and be clear with whatever is presenting itself in the moment. Um, and to be really patient because it is a very deep habit, this idea of getting tight is somehow protecting. But we have to, we have to uproot that tendency both by recognizing when we are relaxed how skillful it is to be relaxed. The mind is just more fluent, more nimble, more skillful, more creative than when the body is tight and the mind is tight. And we have to see how, how uh, narrow and uh, inflexible the mind is when the body and mind is tight. It's like we're just not as functional at anything. And so the more we see those two things, and the more we get, we hear the instruction and remind ourselves of this basic instruction, then we can counter that. Yeah, and you know, when if you have a good acupuncturist, that she's or he is helping the subtle energy move in the body, and that's generally pleasant. And then when we're pleasant, you know, the mind relaxes, and we can just recognize that effortless presence. Mindfulness actually doesn't ultimately take any work, right? You, we don't really need to work at awareness. Awareness is a natural, effortless happening. Nobody does awareness. Awareness happens. The work in meditation is the recognition of the different layers of tightness, different layers of stressing and resisting, and recognizing that they're not helpful, and resolving to not intentionally tighten. You know, we still might get tight, but we're abandoning the intention to be tight, 
to resist, to fight, to struggle, to fix. Because, you know, we have some confidence that's not the way. Thanks, Molly. Yeah, Dan. Here you mentioned about relaxation and alertness. Maybe uh, think right away of like my number one nemesis when meditating. I don't know why it happens, but I can be actually very mindful, very very input, and also my mindful trip. And it's almost like I drift into sleepiness, and it just happens so darn quick. And uh, I've been slowly working through this ever since I started. And the reason why it's a real problem for me, I think, is I take it personally inside. And I, I think it's a statement of uh, failure or something. That I, maybe that's a little strong word, but it's like, you know, this, this is a spiritual experience. How can I fall asleep? <laughs> and, uh, and actually, I don't fall asleep, but it just happens when I quit. But I've learned now really hard to kind of deconstruct it, but I'm learning to accept it. And when it starts to happen, I just sort of acknowledge it and then try to move back and strike the flush and agree. Mm-hmm. And I seem to be making progress in the last couple of months with it. So a little bit of hope there, but um, I just thought I'd mention it. It's, it's, it's very um, frustrating, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because I think it's really relevant to a lot of us in our practice. That habit, that tendency of the mind to feel pretty balanced and pretty tranquil and then to sort of drop off into some fuzzy, trance-like, sleepy state of mind. Very common. And it's very tricky, actually. And acceptance is definitely part of it, but it's, but it's acceptance isn't enough. It just makes, it just helps uh, resolve hating ourselves because we're doing that. It, it sort of modifies the frustration to accept. It's true, though, when you said that, that isn't personal. It's very lawful why that happens. And in general, we want to have this understanding. So instead of blaming ourselves for whatever particular patterns you fall into in your meditation, not to take it personally, whether you're falling into a lot of restlessness, a lot of resistance, a lot of dullness, a lot of doubt, to really see that those predictable states, those predictable patterns are lawful, like they're happening due to causes and conditions. And it's just a matter of being interested. And I think this is what I would do is try to get very, very interested, not because you're aversive, not because you're a bad boy drifting off like that, but because this is how it is. Like, of course you'd want to be interested in this pattern. That's what mindfulness is all about, is getting very interested in the way it is. And so it's not that it's bad that the mind is drifting off like that. The question is, can you be very interested in the natural phenomena of drifting off like that, falling away like that? What are the proximate causes? What happens right before it? Generally, as more, and I don't know if this is the case for you, Dan, but I'd look. Generally, as the mind gains skill in being tranquil, being with experience in a non-reactive way, accepting things, then a deep habit arises, which is when things are comfortable, honey, you don't have to do anything because it's nice. That's a deep, deeply ingrained pattern in the mind that when things are going well, you can shut down because it's all safe and comfy. So just take a rest. Now, we, we don't notice that consciously, but unconsciously this pattern is getting triggered when there's some tranquility and ease in the mind. So the deal here is some aspect of investigation, of alertness, is being extinguished, is falling away. How can we maintain that alertness, that interest? So you need to get really interested in the tranquility, in the spaciousness, in the beauty of that calm, uh, easeful mind state. You have to be interested in it. Otherwise, there's no energy to maintain the state of tranquility. The space of the mind requires energy, requires brightness. Otherwise, there's an implosion into unconsciousness or into some trance state. 
And this is a this is a trick because we often enter the practice with the idea, oh, I just want some ease. You know, I just want some tranquility. I just want to break from my anxiety. So when we get it, we shut down. We stop practicing. And remember, mindfulness is a combination of relaxation and alertness and interest. So ask yourself, Dan, how is the alertness functioning now in the mind? How is it expressing itself now? You should see that quality of alertness, that quality of investigation active in the mind, actively discerning how it is, actively understanding deeply how it is. That's the assertive, active part of the mind. And the other half is the letting go, the relaxing, the, the uh, easing part of the mind. And they don't, they may sound like they contradict each other, but they work hand in hand together. Other thoughts about practice that come to mind? What have you been noticing? What have you been learning about mindfulness of the body these last few weeks? Questions you've been wanting to ask for a while? Yes? Um, my observation has been I'm typically you know, fairly active and strained my back this week. And, you know, was not totally immobilized. I was able to walk around, but no exercise or, you know, and I was in pain the second half of the day. So I was able to, you know, I saw a chiropractor and uh, took steps to, you know, improve the situation. But I really, uh, you know, it's been quite some time since that's happened, so I just noticed how I uh, take for granted my mobility and my ability to move and appreciate, you know, and, and painlessly. And all of a sudden I was, you know, in a lot of pain and I, uh, I just realized how, how much I took for granted, you know, that I usually experience ease and movement so anyway, um, you know, I just became very aware of my physicality. Yeah. With that. It is one of our most important teachers. And we have to respect it this way. I've had bad hemorrhoids the last couple of weeks, and I just finished teaching a residential retreat, spending most of my time sitting down. And so I've been sort of most of the day for the last several weeks. And, you know, it's really unpleasant. Like having a bad back is, or you know, so many other sort of ordinary yucky feelings that we have. And the question is, well, what do we do? What is the appropriate way to be in a body, to inhabit a body? And you know, you'd think, you know, most of us are there are a few, maybe not, but most of us are smart people. <laughs> And yet, it's amazing what beginners we are with pain. You know, as if we should now in our, I'm 53, you know, be surprised that the body hurts or that the body can be troublesome. I mean, it's amazing how much we get surprised by that fact. And, you know, there are a few people probably who haven't had much pain, but that, that they'd be rare, you know, even in this kind of, relatively healthy crowd, probably. So even the little things we want to respect as important teachers, like when you've got the flu, when you have a hangnail, you know, and you pull it, you know, and then you got that little <laughs> ouch. You bang your head, bang your knee. And uh, just, I mean, as a teacher, one of the things that we get interested in is in the habitual response, like feeling sorry for ourselves, getting angry at the thing that you bumped your head against. I mean, just so interesting, these primitive responses we have to physical pain and physical discomfort. Being cold is another thing. I was just looking at my wife. <laughs> you know, some people, like, what a burden it is to go through life being cold. Or other people like me, you know, what a burden it can be to go through life being hot. 
<laughs> or living with somebody <laughs> they have the sleep number beds you know for hardness and softness someday they're going to have the uh, yeah, the hot and cold bed you know where you can have a special heater air conditioning unit for each side of the bed you get it just right but we can we can sort of transform like instead of having a body being a burden that we have to put up with we can really see it as a teacher and what is it teaching us it's teaching us how to be free how to be happy no matter the conditions that's the idea so it's not like we're happy when the body's healthy and then therefore we have to be unhappy when it's not feeling good and unfortunately not only that but even when it's feeling good we're not really happy because we know it might not always be feeling good so this is the this is why that strategy you know of exercising and eating the right food and avoiding unhealthy people and all those sorts of things you know that we think are going to save us even even if we're fortunate you know to have good genes and good health it's not going to last and we know that on some level maybe we can be in denial on the surface but on an, in an unconscious way we know we're vulnerable and so there's tension there so if we consciously make our body our teacher and we consciously welcome the little and big insults that happen and instead of immediately i mean this is the thing about sitting still in meditation practice there's nothing morally wrong about moving our body when there's knee pain or back pain but one of the nice things about training in stillness and holding still for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or 20 minutes is we then can Uh, work with this teacher like there's physical discomfort there's restlessness or there's whatever it is and because of this resolve to stay still for 30 minutes or whatever then we we will have an opportunity to find another way of being with discomfort than to immediately try to fix it by moving or adjusting the body like how can the mind relate to physical pain physical discomfort in a way that alleviates the experience of suffering is there a way are we destined to suffer when the body hurts and so we distinguish you know, in buddhism we distinguish very carefully very clearly between physical um, unpleasantness and mental suffering the the mental contraction that arises because of the physical unpleasantness excuse me that's something we can do we can do something about that mental contraction we can't often or at least sometimes we can't do anything about the physical unpleasantness because it's out of our control sometimes you know there's things we can do we can turn the heat up you know and then the the unpleasantness of being cold is diminished goes away but sometimes there's nothing we can do we're getting the flu and there's really nothing we can do so how can we abandon the mental contraction that would otherwise arise due to the unpleasantness of getting sick how does that work have we mastered that skill you know we bang our head well it's already too late to avoid the thing but can we avoid the contraction the mental suffering that can arise because of the painful sensations being felt in the head this is true with emotional pain it's true with existential pain too so this is why it's such a powerful teacher and it's for some of us and sometimes you know there are people in this room that have been in physical hell for years at a time mostly i mean not consistently And so imagine, you know, people who've gone through cancer regimens or other kinds of like the mothers in the room that have given birth. 
Imagine if, you know, our strategy with pain is to resist it. Somebody at the closing circle today at the end of the residential retreat, one of our community members who's given birth twice, talked about uh, giving birth and and just, you know, in her meditation practice, in her retreat practice, really recognizing the similarities to giving birth and how, like with her first child, you know, the strong instinct, uh, not useful instinct to resist the pain of birth. You know, like as if, if I just tighten up, I'm going to get through this process, you know. And then she even used the phrase, let it rip. Which is, that was especially painful phrase to use. But anyway, just learning in you know, her two experiences and then generally in her life that resisting pain doesn't help. It doesn't help to mentally and physically contract around pain. We can be completely forgiving that that's our habit, you know, to be afraid and to expect that somehow tightening will help. So we learn this in so many little ways when we're a little cold or a little hot, a little restless, the back is hurting a little, little knee pain. So this is the, the, many, the many, many little moments of insight we can have with the body throughout the day, formal sitting time, informal living time, by not immediately, instinctively reacting to the physical pain by movement. So movement sort of masks uh, that little learning opportunity, that opportunity for insight. When we could see how our shift in understanding alleviates a lot of the mental pain, the mental suffering associated with having a body. So I'm happy to say my hemorrhoids have been an important teacher. You know, like how struggling and resisting is not the way. And just appreciating the mind, the heart's capacity to be with discomfort. You know, where, where is it said? Where are the wise people, the people we really respect their wisdom? Where have we heard wise people say that uh, resisting pain works? I mean, who has ever said that? Nobody ever says that. Resisting pain works. It's the ticket. You know, get yourself a good novel and distract yourself. Or I think there was once an experiment with ice water. I wish I had clipped it out of the New York Times. It was in the science section of the New York Times maybe 10 or 15 years ago, so a long time ago. You know, four undergraduates or grad students were asked to put their hand in ice water, which, if you haven't done that, it really hurts very quickly to have your hand in really cold water. And they gave, you know, they divided them up randomly, the different groups of people. And some people were told, you know, just to feel the painful sensations of the cold water. And other people were told to distract themselves in one way or another. And some people weren't told anything. But anyway, and then they did some sort of survey about, you know, having people rate the pain. And... Uh, after they, you know, pulled their hand out of the water to rate that pain. And the uh, distraction, you know, you might, we might temporarily distract ourselves from the pain. But in this sort of frictionless world, there's an equal and opposite rebound. So whatever amount of distraction we were able to whip up, then when we then re-remember how much my hand hurts, it like feels all the more intense for whatever degree we've been able to forget it for a period of time. So what really seems to work in life is to maintain a thread of present moment reality. It's as if, if we can, moment by moment, if we can keep making peace with life as it is, Nothing will ever surprise us. Actually, this is another, I guess, 
maybe after Molly's comment, I was saying about like metaphors for enlightenment. Well, another metaphor for enlightenment is about living your life where nothing is able to surprise you. It's as if the heart or the mind is so completely present, so present that it's not imagining things should be this way or that way. See, if we're not imagining things should be this way or that way, nothing surprises us. It doesn't surprise us when we bump our head because we weren't expecting not to bump our head. You know, we think that we get surprised by bumping our head, but the, the, what causes the surprise is we didn't think that was going to happen now. We don't remember that that was our thought or that was the, our expectation. But somehow, like when we're healthy, we don't realize it, but somehow we're thinking it's always going to be this way. You know, I'm not going to grow old. I'm not going to get hurt. I'm not going to... We just, we don't realize it, but we are imagining that. So then when we do get sick or we do get old or we do get hurt, it's like a, a personal insult. Like it has, it's happened to me and it's not fair. Like how could that happen to me? Why wasn't I told that this is what happens? It's like a, it's not fair. What did I do? Any last comments about the different things we've been talking about or practice that come to mind? Yeah, I forgot your name. Shannon. Shannon. This may not be very wise for you to look at it, but I have And, um, you know, I guess one thing that I've learned is pain is good because it's the body and that can do something. And when I hear people in meditation, I'm like, thinking, it's like, I want to say, stop doing that. You know, I mean, if you don't control whether you have pain or not, you know, it's your body trying to tell you Well, sometimes, but is it always that way? No, no. Yeah. <laughs> but, but if you have the, have the choice, you know, of whether to make the pain go away or not, you know, it seems like maybe she doesn't. Well, I think, I, I guess what I would say is that uh, if the pain is a signal that you're doing something harmful to the body, then we should listen to that pain. We should heed its advice. It's like a teacher, you know, saying, hey, this is not good for the ligaments or this is not good for the joint. But sometimes there's pain that we can't do anything about. And sometimes there's pain that we can do something about, but it's not hurting us in any lasting way. And we can intentionally work with it. It's useful to work with it. Because we're, we're uh, taking it up as a teacher. So that's what I meant about holding still. Sometimes it really hurts, but we're not doing any long-term damage to the body. That we're learning something really important. Even something as relatively simple as going on a Buddhist meditation retreat, where there's a schedule and you're rooming with somebody you don't know and you don't get to cook your own food, you're eating what everybody else is eating. And it's unpleasant because it's not we don't we lose some of our choices and we intentionally sign up for it because we'll <laughs> we'll feel we know we're going to feel some resistance like why did i do this you know can i leave you know what will it be embarrassing to sneak up <laughs> but we stick it out because it's really good to see that resistance in the mind so sometimes, as long as we're not masochistic about it or intentionally wanting to harm the body, harm the mind, we can learn a lot from pain. It's a very useful teacher. And it will prepare us for the pain that we isn't, where there isn't anything to do about it. We can't just move and make it go away. So why not prepare ourselves for that? But generally speaking, you know, pain shows up with regularity. So we don't actually have to do a lot. You know, the Buddha uh, clearly rejected intense forms of asceticism as being unnecessary. Any kind of asceticism that actually harmed the, the health of the body, he rejected. So uh, if that's your point, then you know, I would definitely agree with that. Maybe we'll leave it, yeah, if it's quick, Laurie. I was just going to ask for myself that 
teaching. One of my teachers said something very similar in a kind of funny way, like when we have a, like we're sitting and a pain comes up, whatever it is, a hot flash, restlessness, knee pain, and the thought arises, there's no way I can sit with this for 30 minutes. But right now we're only sitting with it for one moment. So the question isn't, can I be with this experience for 30 minutes? The question is, is it skillful to be with this in this moment? And then the next question is, is it skillful to be with this in this moment, one moment at a time? And But when we uh, bring in this concept of time, then it really appears to be unworkable and maybe even unskillful. But it is moment to moment, and we can just be with it moment to moment. So let's leave it here. Next week we'll pick up the theme of feeling, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality of experience. One thing I wanted to just mention tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.